This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Yvette Coppersmith is a visual artist who's uh, this year won the Archibald Prize, which has been Australia's kind of top prize for portraiture since it was established in 1921. Yvette, welcome to Triple R. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Very great pleasure. Thanks for coming in. So winning this year's Archibald Prize, we'll come to that in a moment, kind of what it, the impact of it and so forth. But I'm intrigued to know what, you entered the Archibald Prize several times before winning. Mm-hmm. You were a finalist four times, I believe, uh, before winning. What is it about portraiture, about contemporary portraiture that intrigues you as a subject matter, whether it's self-portraiture, as in the case of this year's winning portrait, or your portraits of uh, that are sometimes commissioned, for example, Why paint people? Um, Probably just because I'm obsessed. Uh, No, I think think that's sort of come out of... That sort of launched me into painting was my sort of fascination with drawing faces. But then, I mean, my first oil painting was a self-portrait when I was 17. And it was sort of at a point where when you're going into your 20s and your early 20s, I think that interest in the construction of the self and the control you have over your own identity and how um, you are looking at images of other women to try and understand who you are and how you want to present yourself in the world and what gives you agency. I think once you start playing with that, you realise more and more that no single image is an image of who you are. And so there's this sense that you can um, always reinvent and discover new things and new aspects and, um, you know, you can paint who... how you feel but you can paint how you want to pretend you are or what sort of characteristics you want to adopt I I guess um in a way there's with the self-portraits there's always a sense that I want to um break the mold so I I feel too stifled in or not stifled but it's like your day-to-day self um is kind of limiting in what who you can be in the world and I think in the studio there's a much broader scope for um, just imaginary aspects and letting other sides of your psyche out. So that's probably what it stemmed from but I mean I've painted so many other things aside from portraits but yes, I, I keep I've... coming back to them and at the moment people think that's all I paint but. Well you certainly I mean you paint uh, there are abstractions there are still lives and yeah. so forth and as well as self-portraiture you paint other people and I'm intrigued because given that you've painted I don't know the likes of Arnold Zabel for example and, and many others given that you just said that no mm. single image can really represent someone. Yeah. That presents an immediate kind of uh, conflict with the art of portraiture because as, yes. a, as a portrait artist, when you are, regardless of whether it's a self-portrait or particularly a, a portrait of a subject, you are trying to capture them in a way. Mm. So if no single image can represent somebody truthfully at the same time, you're trying to represent them yeah. in a single image. Talk to us about that struggle to, to capture the essence of, of a subject in a portrait. Well, I think, um, you know, I think, Maybe there is a truth in that moment that you've captured or in that kind of that painting has to have a sense of authenticity or speak of some kind of emotional truth that that is conveyed to the viewer. But because we're always changing and, you know, that's just a moment in time and so that painting is like, well, yeah, that was then and then it's not 
No, that that was that person then and that was that interaction because the portrait, I think what the fascination is with portraiture is that it's not just a portrait of somebody, it's also a port. it's really a portrait of two people. So... Um, Except when it's a self-portrait. Yeah, but it's mine was sort of like channeling someone else as well. Jacinda Ardern, the yeah, New Zealand Prime Minister. Yeah. Because I originally wanted to paint her. So, um, and then when she wasn't available, I was like... That's okay. I'll just do a self-portrait as the Prime Minister. Like, I don't literally need to have her to have a conversation about what I wanted to speak about. And I think the last couple of years, because I painted Julian Triggs last year, um, it's sort of more consciously I've realised the Archibald is an audience for your work that you don't normally get. So you're actually having a conversation with, like, it's a platform with the entire um, nation and... To people who don't even normally see your work, don't go to galleries, they all know what it is. Um, so I thought, well, I'm just I'm choosing things that are really meaningful to me to talk about and one of them was looking at how Gillian Triggs's image was portrayed in the media and thinking about, you know, this, this is someone that needs to have her portrait done um, and trying to make an, a painting that is going to work as an image so... Um, it will appeal to the detractors and to the fans on that kind of level. Um, and then with this year, uh, I guess, you know, I think if you see somebody who is your age, who is Prime Minister of another country, who looks like a young woman, like she's the same age as me, and it just kind of expands what the image of a young woman can represent and what it signifies. So I sort of felt... Um, we need to, well, it's actually become more pertinent um, since that idea popped into my head. Though we do need to see more images of women in positions of power in politics. I also think, you know, how, I just think the, the issue at the moment is how do we inspire the next generation of um, talent to go into politics because it just doesn't look like a fun career. No, I mean, you, you look at the way that Julia Gillard was treated, for example, mm-hmm. uh, and just kind of the, the rampant, brutal misogyny that was that she was the target of and that more recently women in the Liberal Party have, have been the target of as well. It's yeah. Kind of, yeah, it's, it's not comfortable. So through portraiture perhaps you can kind of inspire people. Let's take a step back for the moment sure. and talk about kind of the Archibald Prize generally and, and, and then segue through to what winning it was like. Okay. Because I, I will cheerfully confess to having a love-hate relationship with the Archibald Prize. And we're talking with Yvette Coppersmith, who won the Archibald Prize this year, and the touring exhibition of the Archibald Prize is currently on at the Geelong Gallery in Little Mallop Street, Geelong, and I'll give the details of that in a moment. But I say I have a love-hate relationship with the Archibald because it's one of the only times in the, uh, when the Australian media actually pay attention to art. Um, it's mm. that kind of one moment of the year when all the news crews, all the radio broadcasters, writers, etc., all focus on an exhibition and talk about the strengths of visual art culture in Australia for a moment and then they forget about it the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as somebody who makes a living writing about art, talking about art, somebody who is passionate about art, it maddens me that you can't get the, the mainstream media to, to pay attention to the art yeah. world the rest of the year. Is, is Do you have a similar yeah. kind of stance? or? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's um, sort of, you know, it's like populist in a way like the the grand final or the brown low of the arts you know and I think 
in a way, like I, you know, as a teenager, it was like, oh, wow, you know, Archibald. And then you, I went to university and then everybody felt really sort of cynical about it. And then I was like, oh, okay, everyone's sort of not in uh, my dreams, maybe not that great. Um, and then I just realised that in a way it is a really relevant facet of uh, of an art world because because it brings it introduces the general public to people to contemporary painters practices that you know they may not even go to a gallery but it, at least they're finding out and if they want if they're interested maybe in somebody's work they're going to look deeper into it but you kind of need that populist pull to kind of bring um and i think portraiture is so accessible because we all feel um suitably in a position to be judges of character and faces so yeah I think it's just it's one part of that's really important part of an artwork but I think you know how do you spread the love a bit more I don't know I think it's I think it's right like I understand your frustration yeah now uh obviously it's uh it's a a, a prize not only then gets your face in the media and gets your art seen it also came with uh, a rather lovely kind of uh cash prize mm. of 100000 But winning the prize, then you also got a phone call from New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. Yeah. Kind of then And there I, I wonder what was the bigger thrill, getting the money or getting the phone call? <laughs> oh, well, the, the, um, well, both were a surprise. Um, but when, they, when the interviewer said, oh, we've got someone on the phone to speak to you, I thought, oh, what has my kindergarten teacher called in? <laughs> so I was completely blown away. Um, and... You know, in her usual manner, she was just very um, gracious and said, you know, I think it was meant to be that I didn't sit for you because you may not have won. It may not have been as good. (laughs) Um, And that she said, you know, she said, "Um, I'm just really glad that I've inspired somebody to do their best work, which was, yeah, really lovely. And I guess, you know, I think in my motivation with that portrait, and obviously it's not my motivation with all my work, but I did feel like I wanted to inspire other people to think because I think a portrait kind of when it's in your face yes we see her in the media but when you go into a gallery and you've got this quiet one-to-one time to contemplate somebody's image and to sort of have this life-size relationship to it um I think it can spur you to think differently about who you are and in your in your place in the world um but in the in a way like she inspired me I went through my own little process um and, yeah, there was a point because well, I did quite a few versions that, you know, some didn't work and there was a moment in the process where I just sort of quit trying to be the PM um, and just sort of let it happen. But it was like an influence right right the way through. But, um, yeah, I've got someone to visit if we go to New Zealand. Great. <laughs> now, winning the prize obviously must have been quite overwhelming, but simultaneously mm. as soon as you landed back in Melbourne, you had another deadline to meet. So, How it, did you know? I've done my research. That's incredible. Oh, my God, it was so full on. So I had, um, you know, this avalanche of attention and, and admin and then I got back and I had a week and a half and I had to finish a painting for a charity auction at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. So... Um, I mean, I thought I was stressed making my Archibald painting because I did that the week before it had to be in Sydney. The final version, like, started a new linen the, just over a week before and got and, and got it done. And that was really intense and then I had this intense thing and then I got back and everyone thought, oh, you must be on cloud nine and they just had no idea how stressed out I was. And I just thought, oh, I can't keep doing this kind of back-to-back deadlines because I don't, like, it's just not healthy stress. 
I can't function. So, um, yeah, like last night um, I was in the studio. I think I was in the studio till 5am until I actually was falling asleep at the easel um, and had two and a half hours sleep and came in to talk to you. That's kind of crazy. Yeah, but that's what it's like when I don't have a deadline. It's kind of fun to do that. Yeah, just to be able to throw yourself into the... to, to live the work rather than yeah, be focused yeah. on the outcome. Exactly. Just to kind of be in the process. Yvette Coppersmith, just before I let you go, mm-hmm. uh, are there any other of the works in this year's Archibald Prize finalists exhibition uh, that you particularly admire? Yeah, there's quite a few. Gosh, um, well, because I was obsessing over yellow, Tom Polo's work of um, Joan Ross was a stand-up um, and Amber Boardman's crazy um, kind of character in the bath, sort of like taking a selfie in a way. Um, yeah, there's quite a few... Um, I know I've missed so many people that I've... But, yeah, there's... Yeah, it's a really... I think there's something for everyone. It's one of those things you go around and you're like, nope, don't like that, like that. And, um, yeah, it's really diverse mix of work. Well, I know the Geelong Gallery are delighted to be hosting it. I went down last year to check out the exhibition and the crowds were huge. So it brings lots of people into the Geelong Gallery. Uh, Jump online, geelonggallery.org.au if you want more information about uh, going to visit the 2018 Archibald Prize exhibition. I've been talking to this year's Archibald Prize winner, Yvette Coppersmith. Yvette, thanks so much for coming into Triple R. Thank you. Melbourne International Arts Festival is just around the corner and as part of the festival, the company No Fit State are presenting their circus show Lexicon in the Royal Botanic Gardens. Joining us from No Fit State, we have uh, the company's creative producer, Camille Baumier, and uh, the director of Lexicon, Ferenza Guidi. Welcome to you both. Hello. Thank you. Hello. Um, Ferenza, I might get you just to lean a little bit closer to the microphone. Thank you very much. And, um, well, look, um, Camille, let's start with you you, given that you're the, the creative producer of the company. No Fit State are best known for doing more promenade-style circus. This is a traditional show in a circus tent. You talk to us through the backstory. Why have we suddenly gone back into the tent, into the round? I don't know if it's a traditional circus show in a tent, but it's certainly um, a seated show, which is quite new for us. Um, the company's existed for 30 years and we're known for combining contemporary circus, live music, theatricality, and we've always created work that is presented in different types of formats, whether it's outdoors in public spaces or in um, disused buildings, factories, warehouses, churches, and under the canvas, which um, is a big part of the work we've done up until now. But um, all of our shows in the tent have always been promenade performances, standing shows where the audience is free to move around. And, uh, and with Lexicon, we've decided to return to a more traditional format, uh, seating down the audience in the round, uh, because this year we are celebrating around the world the 250th anniversary of Circus. And, and it was important to us to look at that history and heritage of Circus and break down everything and reinvent it 
in our own way. Mm-hmm. Ferenza, you're directing Lexicon, uh, and I found a great quote from you in an interview about the, the production where you say, a lot of circus bores me to tears. How many times <laughs> will I see a trapeze routine that has the same moves, the same routines? Uh, a, I love the honesty of that quote, and, and also it resonates because if you see a lot of circus, uh, uh, you do see a, a certain amount of repetition. What was it that made you want to direct Lexicon? and what do you think you're bringing to it that's new? The, I, I need to take a step back from that. And um, as Camille said, we were, I was asked to create a show that celebrated 250th anniversary of Circus and going, you know, for me, it was very much going back to school, going back to the drawing board and for me there was this desk that appeared in in the foreground me as well you know in many ways deconstructing a lot of what is precisely the well-made routine the well-made you know rope uh, cord lease act, act that you might see in montreal or you might see everywhere in the world what is it that what would it be that actually would make, like it used to make me open my jaw and go, ah, you know, the elephant, the tiger, the... When you don't have these elements, when you don't have the wonder of um, live, you know, animals or, you know, the that kind of danger, what is it that would make people actually sit up and go, wow, you know, that's great. So... Lexicon as a title is a three hour, you know, sort of three year um, (laughs) research on the alphabet of what wonder is, you know, the wonder of. And actually, in the end, my show, our show is populated by misfits, is actually populated by people that in theory are the non-bright, the non-academic, you know, the the ones that probably would eventually run out with the circus. And I always say that the, the main thing about lexicon is school, the desk, the classroom is the first place where a child learns about rules and circus is the first place where they learn to break them. Now, if we're talking about 250 years of circus, I think we need to perhaps get a little bit of backstory for that as well. Um, So in 1768, Philip Astley, Mm. uh, kind of empresario, kind of made what we now think of as as circus. So tell us a little bit more and and why this kind of anniversary is important. Mm. So uh, Philip Astley was um, initially an equestrian, a great uh, equestrian who fought in the war. And when he came back from the war, um, he decided to um, continue to use his um, horseman skills and transfer them to performance. So he created the first uh, ring, the first circus ring of the dimensions um, that have become the traditional dimension of a circus ring, which is 42 foot. And he decided to present his skills in that ring and then started inviting other skills to join him, acrobats, um, saltimbancos, troubadours, musicians, clowns, and, and the circus was born. So 
I mean, you could say that circus has always existed. It can go back to the Roman times. But this form of circus, modern circus, with with this ring and a number of skills that make a performance, that was invented by this guy in 1768 near London. And today, you know, there are many capitals of contemporary circus. Melbourne is one. Uh, Montreal, as Firenze was saying earlier, is also one. The French have really pushed the, the, the genre as well. And it was really important for us as British, as a British company, to say, okay, the, you know, the roots of modern circus comes from our country. And, and what's the journey of the UK in circus? And what have we done as a country, as, an, as a nation, what have we developed and what have we developed as a company? Um, we just turned 30 as a contemporary circus company. So it was important for us to look at that journey, our journey, the journey of circus and, uh, and pay a bit of a homage to that and maybe create something that could be the British contemporary circus. How did you create a, a contemporary British circus? Because it feels like you've, you've got a tall order in some way. You have to do justice to 250 years of tradition. You have to make it new. You have to make it mm. kind of conte- uh, represent contemporary Britain. The Equestrian Acts, for example, is not that circus started with. You can pay homage to that perhaps with unicycles racing around a circus exactly. ring. Exactly, yes, yes, exactly, yes. And you, you hit it, actually. You you hit it on the net. There, there is been a lot of research to precisely try to recreate or try to um, to to in, embrace um, a heritage and not just say we throw the baby out with the bath. Um, it's actually been enriching precisely because for me creating shows in promenade or in st- for a standing audience for a long time with no fit state I was not able to use some skills which could not be seen in uh, in a show which had a standing audience but primarily Richard I just go back there you have to be misbehaving you have to go against the grain but not because it's um, wow it's trendy or it's it's just it's just about I don't need a poet to see the world in the same way that everyone else sees the world. You know, I don't need an artist to... If there is something which actually turns me on or that that actually makes me go, oh, yeah, I would like, you know, I would sit up in my seat, our 700-seater, I would sit up in my seat and go, oh, who is he? What does, you know, what's that? So we started looking at... um, at possibilities of a also how does the animal come back into the show and one of the well for me i for me one of the great things about lexicon is the you know presence and invention of about 45 eccentric bikes <laughs> so um 
the eccentric bike is the sort of mechanical object which actually from the unicycle develops into a, a, a bike with, with a toilet behind that collapses, you know, <laughs> or a number of things which... Uh, at some point, I will not say when, but at some point, all of them come on stage and they behave eccentrically. And as a parade, as a sort of circus finale, as a, it, it that actually does create humorously and with self-criticism and with self-irony, because it's not about, oh, yes, we are recreating the 250. As you say, it's quite a tall... Uh, you know, it, it's quite a responsibility. It's more about who are we, where are we here after all this time and what has Philip Astley left in many ways, which is actually his great business mind was actually saying, well, if these guys sell their salting bags outside my ring and these guys sell donuts and these guys uh, do their handstand routine outside, why don't I bring them in and actually make the best out of it and actually create this um, feel? And, you know, in many ways, that sort of humanity the humanity of what um, a circus show should really... So it, it, it is magic, it is achievement, it is spectacle, it is a lot of things, but above all, it's the dirtiness of the human condition. It's like the misbehaving. One of the things that intrigues me about No Fit Circus, from what I've read, I haven't seen the company's work yet, but this is a company that trains together, works together, lives together yeah. as well, which um, I only know one other circus company that really does that to that degree, and that's the the French collective uh, company XY, mm. who I saw in Perth earlier this year. Mm. And I wondered, kind of like, obviously that must sometimes be crazy and hard to deal with, having so many people living together, working together, training together. But I must, I would imagine that it also then allows for perhaps greater risk in the show because there is greater trust yeah. amongst the performers as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, um, you know, that's a huge part of who we are and who we, we want to continue to be um, as circus develops and becomes more and more um, a form that's presented in theatres, um, sticking to the ring and to the life in caravans, on the road, living together, travelling together is really, really important to us. And we think, we hope, is also what makes our shows a little bit special because of that, um, because of everything that happens between us behind uh, the doors, backstage, Sometimes when we do finish the show. we have to change the show at the drop of a hat because of maybe mm. injury or, you know, there is that great community of the ensemble that... Uh, are able to just, you know, we are able in five minutes to go, okay, this is what we do, that's the plan. Yeah. And I think sometimes that kind of thing would not happen if people went off in their own hotel rooms and and there was, you know... And came on to do their own act for five minutes in the middle of the show. And I think, actually, what happens on stage is quite similar to what happens backstage. You know, it's a bunch of people who are together. It's an ensemble, mm. it's a collective, and that's what you see on stage. It's not a um, succession of acts. 
It's a group of people doing something together and having a hell of a good time yeah. doing it together. Creating stuff for bucket shows after the show for, you know, 12 people watching and, you know, that kind of thing that really makes a group of people continue to create and not feel like they're repeating a mummified piece on a daily basis. Mm. I look forward to seeing the results next week. <laughs> I've been chatting with uh, Forenza Guidi and Camille Bourmier from uh, No Fit State and the director of the show. Thank you both so much for joining us here at Triple R. Thank you. Thank you. My final guest has joined us in the studio uh, and I forgot to ask Jesse how I pronounce your surname. So it's Jesse Boylan? Yeah, that's ah, right. Good. Got it. I should have actually asked that before <laughs> I turned the microphone. But we were chatting, so I got distracted. So hello and welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. Very great pleasure. So you're a visual artist based up in central Victoria in what, Chewton? That's right. I live in Chewton, yep, which is about 5k away from Castlemaine. Yeah. Or Castlemaine. <laughs> um, and is I, it Castle or Castle? Well, local people like to say Castlemaine. Um, I had to change my language when I moved there because it wouldn't be my normal way of saying that word. Yeah, because Victorians um, all say castle and kind of... And I think New central South. Victorians say castle. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. I would never say I'm building a sand castle or I'm going to Newcastle, but for some reason, Castlemaine is okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's its own unique world. <laughs> That's right. So, but you're here not to talk about how we pronounce <laughs> kind of Castlemaine or Castlemaine, but here to talk about your work Rupture, which is uh, on at Bendigo Art Gallery at 42 View Street, Bendigo, for those of you who have not been there before. And part of the, ex the, the gallery's Going Solo exhibition program, which is dedicated to working with and promoting um, Australian artists living and working in central Victoria. Yeah, that's right. So it's a project, I think, that's been, been running for about five years. Um, and, yeah, so I guess they want to foster the local arts community and su support local artists. And really it's for an artist who's kind of trying, you know, going into the next stage of their career. So to support a, an artist who's kind of still emerging um, but want to, you know, kind of push them into the next kind of stage. So to, what, to, to help usher you into being mid-career? Well, I think it's to kind of support... I guess, you know, regional arts, There's a there needs to be more support around regional artists working, you know, regionally in this kind of promotion of the actual quality of arts that, that happens regionally. And I think the gallery wants to work um, and support local artists to kind of go, all right, so what, okay, here you are in this in this part of your practice and so what can you do next and here we can support and kind of lift, you know, support you working with a curator. So I worked with a curator for a year and a half um, who guided me along the way, like every direction I wanted to go down this path. She would kind of, you know, help help me go down that path or help steer me away from that path or, you know, and pretty much they, it's, they've just supported me to have a solo show in the gallery for four months. So it's pretty fantastic. But it's not a solo show and we can talk more about that. Yeah, well, because, <laughs> I mean, it's nominally, it's one of the things that fascinates me about any kind of creative practice that the degree of collaboration is significant. Like if you're a writer... Um, yes, you are the writer, but someone has edited your work and helped 
give it a, a, a form or a structure that it might not otherwise have had. And in this instance, you've created a, a multi-channel video and sound installation, but you've worked with a psychotherapist, you've worked with a performer, you've worked with another digital media artist. So it's kind of, it's a collaborative process, but shaped by your ideas. Yeah, I guess, I mean, part of the stipulation of the, the project is that it's supporting a central Victorian artist. And so, but for me, where I am and have been in the last, say, four years of my practice has been much more collaborative practice. So I've, I've much more um, engaged with sound artists, with producers, with with um, communities. I've worked on community arts projects where the community themselves are determining the story and working with other, like Linda Dement, who's, who's part of this project. So it was kind of interesting to then go, well, actually my solo practice is much more amongst a collaborative practice. And so that's why I brought... Um, those people on board and I think I'm much more interested in the fact that, yeah, like you say, most work is created with other people's input and I kind of love that way of, of no single authorship around this work or my work in general. Though nonetheless it has your name on it. That's right. <laughs> but, it, but it also does say with. Yeah, that's of, right. Talk to us, though, about the impact working with other people has on the way your ideas grow and change because we've all heard the cliche, too many cooks spoil the broth, mm-hmm. and, it, and it is possible to dilute ideas so that they lose potency and focus, and I've seen that happen in the watching a, in the performing arts or seeing a work being guided through the creative development process. By the time it's eventually staged, it can sometimes lose the 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 dynamism that it started out with so for you working and collaborating with other other artists how do you maintain your kind of your vision while at the same time being open to well, working with others that's a really good question i think um I think what I've loved about working with other artists is that they bring different things to the work and so they see different things in the potential for the work and different avenues for exploring those ideas and I think I've just been lucky because I, I mean, I brought people along with me at different points in the process so it wasn't like from the very beginning. Like I did did engage Linda Dement very early on and say, you know, I want you to be a part of this, I can't do it without you and she was sort of, come, she came on board as a bit of a mentor so she kind of was willing to support me you know, whichever direction. And then she would kind of occasionally go, oh, that, you know, this could be better done this way. And I was lucky enough to kind of always agree, like with my collaborators. And it was only earlier this year that we brought um, Virginia Barrett, um, who's the performer, who's this body in the work. And um, she's also a digital artist and has been part of the VNS Matrix, the cyber feminist group from the 90s. And so she's kind of got this long history of working and collaborating with other people as well. So I, and also with Jenna Chuk, you know, that was a, she's a psychotherapist. So she came on board very, very early on in terms of the theoretical discussion and the kind of more therapeutic understanding and the kind of, um, physiological experiences of panic and trauma and kind of getting more of a theoretical grounding and a kind of experiential understanding of those things. So everybody brought different things which contributed to this particular collaboration and I was lucky enough at any point when we were kind of like, oh, I don't think that part's working, everybody would kind of agree. Like there was never usually a, you know, any any points in which we disagreed about anything. So I think that's pretty maybe rare and very lucky. Yeah. yeah. So why explore the, the parallels between the body and the world in, in terms of trauma and panic and anxiety? I mean, 
we we have all at one point in our lives, if not many times, experienced what anxiety feels like, whether it's chronic anxiety or, or just uh, sporadic or rare. But we live in an anxious age in which every time you travel, there are warnings about do not leave luggage unattended or That's report right. mysterious behaviour, et cetera, kind of uh, be alert, be aware. Mm. So was it that awareness of the heightened anxiety the world has been living in since what? Um, uh, the dawn of the industrial yeah. age? Or? <laughs> no, I mean, I think every every era is an anx- more anxious era or an anxious era for different reasons. And I think certainly now we're living in a, in a state of anxiety, in a world of anxiety where we have more access to information and we are seeing increased disasters, environmental and man-made, um, and kind of more things to worry about and being anxious about. And I think there is a, a rise in, in anxiety in young people in particular that um, you know, is prevalent at the moment. But I think for me, what I was really interested in is the similarities between what happens in the world in in modes of like crisis and disaster. So when a catastrophe happens, whether it's man-made or natural, like a, a flood, a bushfire or a nuclear meltdown, you know, there's these kind of symptoms that occur, which are around like things reaching their capacity and, and overflowing and no longer able to be contained. And so I was kind of interested in how the same thing happens in the body and you know this idea to break down this separation between the body and the world so very much to link the relationship between how we we cannot be separable from the world our bodies are part of the world and the world is part of our bodies and we can't be separated so I was very much kind of interested in exploring I guess particularly with panic and anxiety and looking at the kind of symptoms around panic attacks and how they can be seen and mimicked in what happens in the world in those in those kind of disaster situations and also an interesting thing to explore that notion of the fact that perhaps it's actually unhealthy to try and isolate and separate ourselves from the world, being part of kind of the the world around us, kind of admitting that we can't control the world is perhaps a healthier way to live than to try to kind of force our own structures upon it. Absolutely. And this idea that um, we are at the centre you know, the human self is at the centre of everything and that we control everything and that everything is determined by us. And I think, you know, the body in this work is kind of a stand-in for all bodies, you know, human and non-human, to kind of go, well, actually, um, we need to look at how we can work with what the, the the times that we're in. I think that, you know, Donna Haraway talks about it in, in this kind of staying with the trouble. Like we are, we can acknowledge and, and see that we're living in catastrophic times and really deeply troubling times. And so how do we work with all beings in those times? So there's not only like a sense of impending doom and disaster and kind of giving up, you know, hopelessness, but also how do we work with this? And this is, you know, the body responding to that and kind Kind of going. This is how I can engage with that, and not and not pretend like it's not a real thing that's happening, and that the, the the real disasters and catastrophes of the world aren't actually happening to me. And and you know, how can I engage with that and make that possible? For you as an artist, what was the biggest challenge in exploring and? I guess, kind of translating anxiety from um, uh, whether in a diffuse global sense or a specific personal sense? How do you translate and 
present that to an audience in a way which is not going to traumatise them. Well, that's right. But also is going to engage them. Yeah. Well, I think that is uh, one way of looking at it is that there's no one experience of something and I think that we can only look at this one as, as one particular aspect or take on this experience. And, you know, working with Virginia Barrett who herself has, you know, is exploring performing panic, you know, her own experience of panic and anxiety from being a very young from from being very young and so kind of looking at the ways in which she engages with her own panic that's her one experience and it's not to say that it's everybody's experience and i think that what i guess one thing is is looking at and working with jenna um, and talking about the similarities of experience and how there is this ineffability and that language ceases to be useful or that we cannot find, you know, the right language or the the useful, most meaningful language in which to describe this, this feeling or this panic. And so that comes through in the work, through modes of gesture, through the body and the world both, you know, kind of rupturing from the self. So there's a kind of an idea of a body being beside itself and that also happens in the landscape imagery that we see in the work. And so it's never, a tr- you know, there's never one representation of something, but this is the kind of way that we've we've approached it. Jesse Boylan's Rupture is a multi-channel uh, work, uh, video and sound installation. Jesse, thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.